0: Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
1: We're sitting here with Greg Zuckerman, author of The Man Who Solved the Market and How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution. As someone who writes, I'm really interested in the... Thought process behind writing it. Was there a singular moment where you had an aha moment where the light went off and you said, I kind of can wrap my my head around this, or was it more of a slow burn to kind of understand what exactly was going on there and what they were doing at Renaissance Technologies?
2: So there was a moment. So early on I was sort of for months, I wasn't sure I could pull this thing off and I was gonna tell my publisher, you know, it's just impossible. The guy won't talk to me. Nobody within the firm is telling me. The people that used to work there are saying, Greg, don't waste your time. But then I went out to California and I met Elwin Burlacamp and his former colleague Sandor Strauss. And they worked with Simons early on. And not only were they sharing really interesting information, it was a great story. And I was like, you know what? How do I not do this book? I've already got some real insight into the early period and it's colorful and it's entertaining and it's and I'm learning a lot. So I'm going to make a bet here that I can actually keep it going. <laughs> How'd you find them? So they just doing research on the firm and hearing, reading some old articles and talking to people. And they seemed both the few people that were still alive. There were a few people that no longer were with us, but they're alive and they're interesting and they're colorful. And then they're, and, and they're unusual people and super smart. So I figured, okay, as a writer, you need characters. So here are two interesting characters. Let me build off of these guys. From there, it still wasn't clear, but at least I got a little more confidence that I could pull it off.
1: So, from the market side of things, put your sort of market reporter hat on. Explain to me, if you can, what is the difference between what you think that Renaissance does and what high frequency trading does? Is there a big difference that, that you can see between what they do in sort of time horizons or?
2: yeah it, it, there is a huge difference, and I kind of went into it, not sure of the okay. distinction but so yeah, so high frequency it's all about speed and about getting in before you and I do potentially, and you know milliseconds we're talking about what they do at Renaissance is fast, but it's not nearly as fast and quite honestly, they've looked into doing high frequency co-locating and all that kind of stuff and and they fail. Their machines are powerful, but they're not the most powerful. And they sort of tease each other a little bit that they're fast, but they're not as fast as these other kind of guys. So it's not about speed with them. It's a holding period of around two days. So it's not in and out, front-running other people. It's about figuring out patterns in the market that you and I miss. And they are, they are short-term patterns. They are months potentially as long as months, but usually not. It's more kind of moments to months is what they say so internally. You,
0: you said in the summer of 2019, they did 5% of daily trading volume, exc- oh, I'm sorry, Medallion. Medallion, Did yeah. 5% of trading, daily trading volume ex- excluding HFT. Where did you find that? Uh,
2: that's a good question. I- Got that sense from talking to people, and then I ran it past some internal people who are familiar with those numbers. So
0: the, comp- the people who work at the company, are comfortable with that number. So they're doing. So it's not HFT, but oh my god, yeah. they're doing a lot of trades. I think I, I think somewhere it's one hundred fifty. Oh, here it is. Medallion made between one hundred fifty and three hundred thousand trades a day, but much of that activity entailed buying or selling in small chunks to avoid impacting the market prices. And Simon said, "Quote." I'm not sure we're the best at all aspects of trading, but we're the best at estimating the costs of a trade. Right, Michael. So this an important point that, yeah, they are a fast
2: trading firm, but lots of times it's just to put a position on. So they're easing into a position or getting out of position in small bites. So they look to outsiders like they're fast training, high frequency, and they're not. And the second point is a really important one. So we as investors, we all focus on the signals or the trade. And when you get something that the other market, market people, participants don't get, um, the, we're investors. So that's what we look for. But internally, when you talk to people at Renaissance, yeah, the signals are important. But just as important is are things like how you impact the market with your trades. And that's a huge deal when it comes to quants. Execution. Execution, slippage, things like that. And they're really good at that, estimating your risks involved in your positions. So there are all kinds of elements to trading that maybe aren't as sexy, perhaps. They're not something that the average person really focuses on. We all think of you know buying something and hopefully it goes higher and you're a hero. But um, when you talk to a sophisticated trader at Renaissance and Medallion per se, that their funds, they are focused on all kinds
0: of other aspects of trading that I I hadn't been myself. Ben, could you you had such a good insight that like there's four thousand books on Buffett, but this is this is such a different user experience.
1: Yes, I I just had a the takeaway from after I got done reading this was so much different than the other ones in that I think if you read the book on Buffett, you think to yourself oh, he makes it sound so simple and folksy and easy that I could probably do that. But no one's going to read this book and take away that I could be like all these code breakers and mathematicians and do this. So... What do you think that takeaway is for the investor that that reads this? Just the fact that, I mean, know what's who's on the other side of your trade, or what is the the takeaway here for any investor, whether they're professional or just a retailer or whatever?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So for the average guy, I would say it's a it's a lot of things. There are things, there are ways you can learn from Renaissance in terms of how they hire talent, how they work together, how they create. Uh, It's as much of a management book, I would think, as an investing book. This open architecture, how they recruit, how they look for talent, just as opposed to the job opening, they just try to find the best people. But in terms of the investing lessons, one of them is you don't want to be a short-term investor. And I don't even mean kind of a day trader. You've got to go the opposite direction of people like Renaissance. If they're going to do Uh, As much as a few months and and a few days, the only opportunity left for the average investor is to be a much longer-term investor. And I don't mean years necessarily, but you want to be going against the grain and not compete with Jim Simons. And that's probably at least- a year, a holding. And you can actually take advantage of some of the panics and the greed out there and and the fear, um, which is what Simon's does. I mean, a lot of what they do is taking advantage of the behavioral mistakes that you and I make. They do the best. Speak for yourself. Okay, (laughs) that I make. They do the best in times of panic because over and over again, we make similar mistakes. So it's another reminder as an investor, as an average investor, to be aware of the behavioral mistakes that that many of us Or or I'm prone to do, and to avoid, and to avoid them, and to be a longer-term investor than maybe we otherwise
0: would be. So you know, when you see like Fed announcements and economic data announcements, and see the spike and then the fade, is that them? I mean, are they not doing that? It it could be. It depends what their models
2: are telling them. They they themselves aren't always sure what their models are doing at any time. You know, a lot of it's machine learning at this point. It's 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 become much more sophisticated over the years. So uh, even they aren't necessarily sure until they look in in hindsight. But getting back to sort of those those investor lessons, I really do think that there are ways to kind of train yourself and to fight those behavioral mistakes. And this is one more reminder to to do so.
1: And you talked here about like, who's on the other side of the trades? And one of the guys said, well, we think it's a lot of dentists who are overconfident. But Simon said, well, it's definitely probably not the long-term buy and hold people. We think it's actually more of like the the global macro hedge fund people. You know, so that's interesting that yeah. that he thought they're actually taking advantage of these professionals. And so, do you think in recent years that Medallion has probably taken advantage of more professionals than individuals because so many individuals are going to like index investing? So Ben, it's a great
2: question, and I actually, in preparation for sort of this, you know, media coverage of my book, I talked to a guy internally who works there just last week, because I wanted to kind of get the the latest. And you you write this, and there's a lag. It was printed a few months ago and all that. And what I said to him was, okay, the market seems to be changing where there are fewer dentists. There are fewer of these average people that you at Medallion and Renaissance can take advantage of. So, does that mean that the nature of the market is changing? Does that mean that perhaps your patterns won't work, your, your your statistical analysis, your strategies won't work like they were in the past? If the market, if there are fewer of you and I or people like me playing the market, and fewer people for them to take advantage of, does that hurt their abilities? And they said that they sh- they're still, and this is what what they said as of you know last week. There's still enough people out there. Doing the same kinds of trading that they used to, kind of active investors. But there could get to the point where as the market goes to index indexing and ETFs and passives, that the nature of the market changes. And if it happened overnight, then I think Medallion would have a problem making money. The, the fact that it's it's probably going to be a longer term process means their models can probably adjust or potentially adjust. But yeah, it's not clear they can keep doing 66% a year. It's
0: really not so if, obvious. If, if If the retail trader are guppies, they're not eating the guppies. They're like the Megalodon, to use uh, one of my favorite movies, eating the great white sharks. So they're feasting on the other smaller... Professional money managers. Is that is that fair to say? I would say they, Michael, they they feast on everyone. So they
2: feast <laughs> on the guppies, they feast on the big fish. They just like making money. So what I do find interesting and people aren't aware of this, people think quant. You think quant is the big category, and these all these and everyone's a quantity. And it is true, thirty-one percent of trading is quant, but there are different categories of quant. And what they do is very different from like an AQR. There actually aren't many people that trade the way Medallion does in terms of few days holding period, not super short term like HFT. There are a lot of Jane Streets. There are a lot of HFT type fast traders. They don't do that. Their competition is like two sigma. There are a few places, d to some extent. There are a few places, but they actually don't have as Fed. much competition as you, the <laughs> Fed. There actually you know, aren't as many competitors for Jim Simon's firm as you would think. If they went away,
1: let's say that someone came into office and put a trading tax on that made it just not make sense for them to, to do this anymore. If Renaissance just completely shut down or went away, would the market notice? Would there be a big hole there? Or would you think things would just continue to go on as they are and it would be hard, harder to notice?
2: It's hard to tell, but I don't think the market would notice that much, which sort of gets to the point of, are these guys net you know, a, a benefit to the society as a whole? I mean, you could make the argument. Well, they took $100 billion out. They took a billion from from somewhere, right? And not only that, but they've siphoned brains from all kinds of different areas of society, mathematicians, scientists. You know, I've made the argument to people Internally and people close to the firm and that you know net net I don't, are they are they good for society? Maybe these people could have cured cancer. They're, yes. they're so much smarter than you and I. are, again, I don't want to speak for you. Than, <laughs> than I am. Maybe these guys should have stayed in academia, and all these kind of revolutions would have resulted. I'm a little skeptical. Perhaps not. They, they've said to me what there is. They respond is that a they're not that capable of curing every disease had they stayed in, in academia, and and B, they do make so much money, and they do generally do really good things with the money, not just Jim Simons, but other people too. So, and, and I agree with that. They've done all kinds of crazy, it's interesting- philanthropic. Yeah, in Africa, all kinds of places. So, I, I would argue that Nat, Nat, they're doing some good things for society with, with their money, or at least many of them are. So, do
0: you think that, I mean, one of the early edges that they had was information, they, they they compiled a giant database and Mercer would say later, there's no data, like more data. Yeah. So that was their edge early on. They had better data. is that Does that edge persist? Is that what, where their edge is? And how many people could, like, this is a sort of separate related question. How many people in the organization can explain what they do? Like really explain what they do? They're pretty sophisticated
2: internally. And I think many of them can explain the approach. They uh-huh. can't necessarily tell you why they're up this year, yeah. that kind of thing. But- these are really remarkable individuals. And I don't say that in, you know, I don't be laudatory. They're not, I'm not saying, again, maybe they should be doing other things with their time, but they're pretty impressive individuals in that they're worldly. Many of the people they travel, some of them are, are not from America. They're from all over the place. They They have a a remarkable collection of talent—people that could be working, you know, Google and Facebook kind of thing—but have chosen to tackle the market's challenges. You know, in, in that regard, they're kind of unique. So, so these people, I think, can explain what they're doing. What was I forgot? What was the first part so the, of your the question? first question was the informational edge? Oh, that's a good question. So, I would I would say until around I don't know 2010, maybe they had a real maybe 2005. They had a real advantage over everybody else. Today, not as much. They do have data that nobody else has. So someone explained it to me as follows. Let's say you two wanted to start a library, how long would it take you or anybody to start like a local library? I don't know, a few months maybe to get, you know, a decent library going. But how long would it take you if you wanted to start the Library of Congress? You couldn't. And they have data that probably you you can't get your your hands on from going back way back in the 1700s. But that said, it's more, that's for people who want to look into curiosities within the firm. Day-to-day they have every kind of data you want, but so does, you know, AQR and, and lots of other places, uh, Winton, et cetera. So I think they have every kind of data there is out there, but other people do. So it's not as much of an advantage a- as elsewhere. It is cleaner than other people, but that, again, other people have cleaner data than, than in the past too.
1: A lot. Of, so a lot of the book was surprising to me, obviously, because the story hasn't been told that often, but- What were some of the more shocking or surprising things that you learned along the way that you didn't really plan on encountering?
2: So I figured Jim Simons worth $23 billion, the greatest moneymaker in modern financial history, I figured he came up with algorithms that anticipate where the market's going. He's got a few ones that he worked on. He's a mathematician. He's one of the greatest geometers over the past 50, 100 years, and yet the more I looked into it it was a little disappointing to find that or in some ways maybe reassuring he wasn't the one it was a group of people around him and he he's great at hiring he's unbelievable manager you can learn from him in terms of and dealing with these personalities and these big brains but he himself never came up with any of these of uh, the algorithms and the, and the signals. He he participated in the meetings. He asks great questions. He encourages. He pushes. He does all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of why I focused as much on these other characters in the book. And there's so many interesting ones around him. Bob Mercer, Peter Brown. Who was the, the junior associate?
0: People? The junior associate that solved the glitch that was almost fired. Oh, David Ma- David Magerman, yeah. yeah. So when, when he went to Mercer and said, "Here it is." Yeah, yeah. And Mercer was like. Oh, you're right. So, so to your point, Simons was the architect of the team that managed the investments, and there was when he said to Brown and Mercer, like in order to really scale this thing, they had to get into equities, and that was like the the code that they couldn't crack. And he said, "I'm giving you guys six months, or I'm pulling the plug." Yeah, I mean, it didn't have to go this way. It yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, that's exactly right. Right. Until 1994, they were successful, but they were about $800 million as a hedge fund. And back then, that was sizable. Don't get me wrong, but they were capped out at $800 million. So beyond that, unless you get into equities, you really can't. There's some of these markets, soybeans and other kind of stuff are just too narrow. So- They needed to make stocks work, equity trading work, and they couldn't. They spent years on it. Super smart people, Robert Fry, other people tried and failed. And Mercer, as you suggest, Mercer and Brown were brought over from IBM. And they tried and failed. And it took, they had to figure out this glitch I write about in like 1996. And and then they were off to the races. But right, were it not for that glitch and David Magerman and and them figuring it out, maybe someone else would have, you don't know, but maybe not. And then, yeah, we wouldn't be here talking about the greatest money making machine modern finance has, has ever seen.
1: So did Simon single handedly make the entire office smell like a bowling alley? Is that is that possible? <laughs> I mean, we were trying to figure out. Is Are he bowling
2: alley allowed to smell like cigarettes today? Uh, maybe not
1: anymore. Yeah. But he has to be on the pantheon of greatest smokers of all time. Yeah, he, or they, unless they just really invested in the ventilation system. Sure, there.
2: pantheon of geometers and pantheon of, of, of smokers. The great thing about Jim Simons is, firstly, he's an older guy, so older people don't care. So, and he's Jim Simons, so you'll be talking to him. You know, I've sat in his office. And he doesn't say, Greg, do you mind if I light up? No, no, no. There's none of that, Greg, do you mind if I light up? He starts lighting up, and the smoke's in your face, and you either choke and keep talking to him, or you you leave, and you're not leaving, you know, you spend time with Jim Simons. So, And he's, you know, this weird aberration where he's still healthy and 81 and sharp as a tack, and he's smoking like a a chimney, yeah. Did you get
1: the impression that he kind of thought this book was never going to get written about him? Because you said it really took a lot of back and forth to get him to sit down and finally... Do you think he thought that this was going to happen or not?
2: Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I think he. I think in the back of his mind, he'd like to write a book, and people around him are like, "No, he's never going to write a book." So I don't think. See, he kept saying no. I'm. I'm not the only person that asked him. I went through the front door and I said, "I'd love to write a book with you or about you, etc." And he's like, no. And there's people are like, no. And I wasn't the only person. You think I'm the only person? So I think he figured if he keeps saying no, then no one's going to write about him. And he's 81. So, you know, that's it. But right. So I'm not sure he thought I'd be as persistent and obstinate as I was. So, yeah, that was the thing that I think surprised him that I kept going on it.
0: So there was there was a part in the book where I wrote in the margin odd stats. There was this person on Twitter who had this account called odd Stats, and they would just do some random data mining and whatever, whatever. And it was sorta of for laughs and it was, you know, a joke. However, there was a part in the book, and I'll just read this quote did the 188th five minute bar in the Cocoa futures market regularly fall on days investors got nervous, while bar 199 usually rebounded? Perhaps bar 50 in the gold market saw strong buying on days investors worried about inflation, but bar 63 often showed weakness. This blew my mind. I mean, were they really doing stuff like this? Yeah. yeah. So they broke up the day. Just explain to uh, your
2: your listeners. They broke up the day into bars, and the question. Then you can compare the bars. Uh, And that was, I think, that was Henry Laufer, who doesn't get enough credit. He's this guy down in Florida now, multi billionaire, very liberal, uh, even more liberal than Simon's is in his political leanings. There's a whole mix there, and there's lesson there. And you know, how do you run a firm with so many different political minded people? But yeah, so they. Played with breaking up the day into bars, and eventually they got into I think five minute bars was and below that it didn't really work. Above that wasn't as efficient, and yeah, they got they broke it down. You'll read about it in the book, but yeah, they got into five minute bars. I mean, yeah. this
0: is the stuff that we laugh at, and this is what they were doing. And just it, it blew my mind, and I was also surprised that they don't have like okay, here's our equity sleeve. He's these these are their futures. This is the bonds, currencies. It's one model. It's that's
2: unique about them. That's a good point that um, you talk to other firms and they are different models within the firm. And partly that's so that people can get paid differently. And that's another thing. Jim Simons pays his people. He incentivizes people to keep working with each other. The way it was explained to me is if you're going to get coffee for someone or you're cleaning the data and you're doing a, just a really good job you're going to get paid it's not just the superstars i mean the researchers are the sexy titles within the firms researcher but other people who collect data that's important too
0: you said the average employee has 50 million dollars in the fund did you get a sense was that skewed big time or? it's skewed yeah so, okay so do you, did was a median like a million or big time
2: i think it's oh i think it's probably more than that yeah okay. it's it's crazy and that's partly why they don't lose people. And when they lose people, it's a great self-reinforcing kind of system. When they lose people, they're so wealthy that they're probably not going to go work for Wall Street. If you've made a lot of money working for Renaissance and Jim Simons, why are you going to go work for you know, some rival? Go,
0: go buy an island or an alp who, or something. Who, who are these researchers? Like, it's not, you said it's, it's traditionally not people in finance. It's people in weather and medicine and whatever. Like, what, were, what do these people do?
2: Yeah. So it's not just even that they're PhDs. So everyone thinks, oh, well, oh, Simon has a lot of PhDs. i think. Got- sorry. He's-
0: so the point is, it's not just mathematicians, I guess. Like, so-
2: y- yes. And it's not just any mathematicians. These are scientists. These are mathematicians who were the tops in their fields of uh, physics. Um, they get a lot of uh, astronomers. They love astronomers. What do they do? We mean, what do they do when they get there? Yeah. they have problems. They figure out problems. It's all like it's a scientific. They're trying to figure out patterns, looking for patterns that you and I don't see, and what's affecting the market that you and I aren't aware of. So we all, everybody, is aware of you know earnings, and then you think of alternative data. So we're piping that in. It seems like from the from Simon's Jim Simon's people, there are many more factors affecting the market than anybody else is aware of. And I, I, I frankly, I, I haven't discovered all of them or what they are that, that we don't appreciate it. But I do realize that they appreciate many, they understand many more of them. So they hire these guys like a David Donahue, who's a top, su- superstar at Stanford. So he, again, he, he these are not just PhDs, they're the tops of their fields. And Simons will say, come work for me you'll get paid a lot but more than that you'll just do the challenge of it and you'll figure out how to improve our system and it's a it's it's really a, an engineering problem as much as it is uh, investing when it comes to piping in the strategies and the signals and putting it all into one system as you suggest and that's the beauty of it amazing
0: so they're they're code breakers
2: i mean they're they're developing code they're writing code they're looking for hints of of patterns that the human eye can't can't pick up, and they're, they even if they're fleeting, um, they 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 yeah. and they can make enough. And yeah, my initial
1: read was. This, he's just a problem solver. That that was yeah. his whole thing is I'm solving problems.
2: And that's and that's how you hire people who don't really care so much about money. I mean, time and time again in the book, as, as I think maybe you recall, he's hiring these brains who aren't so into getting wealthy. They don't even care about the market. And that's how you do it by saying, forget, forget, forget the investing and making a lot of money. You can solve a problem. But then once you're there and you start making a lot of money, then as we all know, how do you turn that down? How do you leave?
0: So dumb question, or maybe not. Let's say that Simon said to you, "Hey Greg, thank you for doing this. Great job. I'm going to open up the fund for you. How much of your money, percentage wise, would you put in this fund?" Okay, the Wall Street Journal
2: wouldn't allow me. I would have to quit. Well, of course, and <laughs> and would I do that? I, I wouldn't. I, but I would put. I, honestly, I would put ninety percent of it. I really would. Wow. Now you know, maybe that's silly and the returns won't be as good going forward. I don't think the returns can't. How can they be as good as 66% a year going forward? But knowing just the talent level, the dedication, there's a sort of an energy within the firm too that you wouldn't necessarily expect given that these are academics. But once they get over there, it's high energy. There's a lot of pressure on them, but not crazy pressure. They work together. Yeah, it's a pretty well-run organization. So I would put if, if wow. I hypothetically was able in. to, I'd put nine. But, but, <laughs> I'm all in. Yeah, So to go. the extent that somebody can't stop the market, they actually did. I mean, listen, let's, let's be clear. They only get it right barely more than half of the time. So let's not go overboard here. They don't get it right all the time. They're just sort of more like a casino where the casino also doesn't get it right. Well, if
0: you're doing a $300,000 300, trades a day and yeah. you have a tiny little fraction of an edge.
2: Yep, yep, that's it. So yeah, listen, they're, they've beaten everybody else, but there are other good investors out there. And one thing that also shocked me in my research, I figured when you talk to a guy who's been at Renaissance and has made a lot of money and they've retired, they invest only in other quants, you would think. And it's not the case. You talk to some some of the former Renaissance people and they're investing like, you and I, to some extent, not not in terms of on their own, but in terms of their allocations to like David Einhorn. One of the guys I was talking to invest. You would think David Einhorn sort of comes up with themes. He's a long He's short guy. Yeah, you would think. And, and, and I think the reason for that is that they're humans like you and I, too. And a lot of the, one of the themes of my book, and I hope it comes across, is it's not so easy to be a quant. They're fighting their own instincts to some extent. So, Simon's, you know, he's an, even as, as of last year, he sort of panicked in his own personal account. So, I found that kind of interesting. Amazing. Anything else that we missed? I think there are lessons, uh, not just for professional investors. I, I, I was another thing that jumped out at me: how you can learn from some of these individuals. There's sort of just sort of the theme of persistence and resilience and being able to um, handle real setbacks. I, I found that on a personal level, kind of impressive. And yeah, this
0: was not an overnight success story. The right, opposite,
2: right? And there's some value there. You know, this may not be something that the average listener does themselves, and in, in terms of. Investing in full time trading, but there are lessons I, I learned some sort of life lessons just from being around these super smart people and and how they appreciate attacking a problem, but also the method the scientific method and the idea of not relying on your instincts I mean frankly, when you look in the White House, you look elsewhere, the most important decisions of our society result from sort of instinct and intuition. And that's the last thing we should be doing in society. I wish that some of these scientists were actually working in the White House or the Fed. And 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 it's all about the scientific method and testing hypotheses and relying on data and not using judgment and intuition. We like stories better. Yeah, we, we love stories. And that's where we go wrong with like WeWork and Theranos. It's all about falling in love with the yarn. And that's one thing that just reminded to me about from the from the story, one thing that came true is just be careful as an investor and, and member of society about about these kind of too good to be true stories, but just any, any story and, and rely more on data. And when you look at the most successful store, um, companies today, it's like Tencent, it's Amazon, it's it Netflix, and they rely on models ever-changing models and that's what renaissance does
0: well this is a lot of fun Greg thanks for coming in if you enjoyed this conversation definitely get the book it was definitely on, on my short list of books of the year so congratulations great great to be here thank you